Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We, uh, we're not running a mic around. Evidently, uh, there's some worried about germs. So, but it, still ask your question. Just tell me what it is. I'll repeat it. And uh, we'll still get it on the mic that way. We'll get it on here that way. Let me uh, begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the word of God that you've given us. That we, that we may learn and grow and be grounded in the gospel. Help us think clearly and biblically so that we might be wise and not unwise and grow in your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, good morning. We are moving to a new chapter. We're making progress. Acts 15. Now, <clears throat> You see my title, A Serious Dispute Erupts. Let me read the six verses here. I don't know if we'll get them all covered, but probably we will. Let me read that, Acts 15, 1 through 6. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And after there was no little strife and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them, they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this issue. So they were sent on their way by the church and passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, telling in detail the conversion of Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and reported all that God had done with them. But some of those who had believed from the party of the Pharisees stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to observe the law of Moses. Both the apostles and elders assembled to deliberate concerning the matter. So they had was often called this Jerusalem Council. Are the newly converted Gentiles going to have to keep the law of Moses? So here's verse 1. So this originated, notice they came down from Judea, and they were teaching their doctrine. You had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or you cannot be saved. Okay, so they're not just talking about being a little more pleasing to God. They're talking about escaping God's wrath against sin. And so you're going to have to receive this um, Mosaic covenant law in order to be saved. And so we had already had a number of cases narrated in Acts of Gentiles accepted into the family of God, receiving Christ with joy, being baptized. We already had the incident of Peter's vision of the unclean animals, you know, in his dream, and the whole uh, household of Cornelius and all of that. So you have precedent in Acts that clearly not only was God saving Gentiles 
But at least in the case of Peter's uh, dream or vision, the food laws are not going to be binding on the Gentiles. And now the issue of circumcision was, uh, was raised by people in Jerusalem who were Pharisees who had come to Christ. Now, just so you understand, there are three things that were the identity markers above all else that was uh, pertained to Judaism, that made them separate from all of the other nations and made it very, very difficult for them to integrate into the other nations. It kept them separate. And those three things were circumcision, the food laws, and Sabbath. Those are the three biggies. And those all are discussed and debated in the New Testament. Now, I was talking with Eric a little bit about this before church, or before we started here. And I, I point out something that I've often thought about. Why is this such a big deal? Well, if you think about it, the Jews had paid a price for their entire existence for being who they are, for being the people of God. They were persecuted. They were hated. They were driven from nations. And many horrible things had happened to them. And because they'd paid such a big price, their identity was very important to them. So now Christ comes on the scene of history, the promised Messiah, and what starts happening, if you're reading Luke-Acts, already there's a big issue going on, even during the time of Christ. Because the announcement's made that certain things are being fulfilled that we've seen in the book of Isaiah and in the Psalms was that God was going to save pagans. He was going to save Gentiles. And we see previews of that in Luke and then a more extensive description of it in the book of Acts. So in Luke-Acts, there's a thing that's happening about God saving Gentiles. Furthermore, in the very great commission that we find in Luke and in Acts, it said that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so clearly that's the agenda for the book of Acts, that the gospel would go throughout the whole world. And we see this already beginning to happen. But this is it a crisis? This is a serious crisis that happens while the apostles are yet living. Because this will determine the future of biblical Christianity. Are we going to make it a subset of Judaism? Or is faith in Christ not merely Judaism and Gentile proselytes and adding some things to Judaism. And so if they continue to require Sabbath keeping, 
food laws and circumcision, then you still have basic Judaism, but adding Messiah to it. Now they're going to have to decide that. That's the battle. That's what's going on here. Is that going to be the way it is? Now already, it seemed like this was going toward accepting the Gentiles. So turn with me back to Acts 11, and let's revisit what had already happened. In Acts 11, and a lot of this is predicated on what God had already done through Peter. In verse 18, Peter had mentioned what God had done. And it said here in Acts eleven eighteen, and when they heard these things, they became silent and praised God, saying, then God has granted the repentance leading to life to the Gentiles also. Look at that, Acts eleven eighteen. God granted repentance leading to life to Gentiles. Now, they're still Gentiles. And at that point, they didn't say, well, okay, now let's uh, consult Moses on what we're going to do with you. Now, we've talked about this a lot here, but, but many people don't get the implications of it. Remember earlier in Luke, the, the Mount of Transfiguration? We've talked about this a lot. Who is the one that they need to see glorified, and who is the head of the church? Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they had, as they went up, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And in the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah Elijah disappear, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, listen to him. Now, I believe that that is intentionally alluding to Deuteronomy, is it 18? Could you find that? I think it's verse 15. And this is very significant. I'm repeating it here. I know I've preached on this a lot, and so is Eric. I'm repeating it here because this is very important. Yeah, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Moses says, "The Lord your God will raise up for a, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." Okay, so here is why that's so important. Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Well, there were other prophets under the old covenant. But what's unique about Moses that would help us identify this new prophet? You can talk about this, Eric, if you want. You're the only one with a mic today. Well, he was a mediator of the Old Covenant. Yeah, he was a lawgiver. Lawgiver. Yeah, the law was given through Moses. So the other prophets under the Old Covenant didn't add laws to Moses. They many times would rebuke Israel for breaking the law of Moses. There's a 
the genre of material within the prophets called a covenant lawsuit. Here's what God said through Moses. Here's what you're doing. Here's the consequences. Therefore, repent. But the prophets were referring to Moses or they did give guidance to kings about Israel in particular in certain cases what to do, what not to do. A lot of times the kings wouldn't listen to them. But they weren't lawgivers. They weren't adding to Moses. So the thing that's unique about this prediction in Deuteronomy 18.15 was there would be a future prophet like Moses when he comes, listen to him. Now, even the Jews realized that that was significant. I don't have the references from the intertestamental literature with me right now, but so I'm thinking about this. There was a time when they were wondering what to do, and it was after Malachi, before Matthew, during the time of the Maccabees, and it says in their own literature, well, we'll wait until God raises up the prophet, and then he'll tell us what to do. They knew they had no Moses, and they didn't know what to do, so there's evidence that they were cognizant of Deuteronomy 18.15, that they better wait and see if a prophet shows up. Well, the prophet that was predicted in Malachi turns out to be John the Baptist. But the one that they must listen to is identified on the Mount of Transfiguration by a voice from heaven, God the Father, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Therefore, identifying Jesus as the one Moses predicted. So Jesus would be the lawgiver of the new covenant. And lawgiving and being under law has to do with binding and loosing. What are we bound to? And what are we loosed from and given freedom? And that's what has to be determined. So that will have to do with Jesus. Because he would be the one who would decide what we can and cannot do in order to be pleasing to God. We have to listen to Jesus and then his apostles. Now, looking a little further ahead in Acts 11, let me read 22 through 24. And the report came to the attention of the church that was in Jerusalem about them. So already Jerusalem is mentioned in Acts 11 because that's where they're going to go have this conference, figure out what to do. And they sent out Barnabas as far as Antioch, who, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devout hearts. Because he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit of faith, and a large number were added to the Lord. So therefore, the church of Jerusalem had already accepted the conversion of Gentiles before Acts 15. And it seemed like everything's going pretty good. But we're going to find out the problem was far from solved. Some people, namely those of the Pharisee sect, decided this was bad. And they wanted Moses to be the one who determines 
what's binding on Christians, including Gentiles. Does that all make sense? We have to get this because throughout church history, an awful lot of people haven't got this. And continually, it keeps coming back up again. So we've got to get it right. Dr. Peterson, in his commentary, gives this background. Quote, prophets later came down from Jerusalem to Antioch to contribute to the life of the church, Acts 11, 27, and 13:1. One of them predicted a severe famine in Judea, provoking the Christians to send Paul and Barnabas with practical aid, Acts 11, 28 to 30. This was probably the visit to Jerusalem mentioned by Paul in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So we got to try to see how that weaves in. Back to Peterson, where he said before the James, Peter, and John, the gospel, he preached among the Gentiles, and they added nothing to his message. They acknowledged a common gospel, says Peterson, and a God-given partnership in the work with the Jerusalem leaders, broadly accepting responsibility for ministry to Jews, and Paul and Barnabas, ministry to Gentiles. On this occasion, even Titus, who was with the team from Antioch, was not compelled to be circumcised. Okay? So you would have thought it settled. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Though pressure was applied by some, quote, false believers who had infiltrated the situation. We cannot be certain when the next incident mentioned by Paul in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, took place, though it was most likely to have been before the resolutions of the Jerusalem Council brought public agreement between Peter, James, and Paul and Barnabas on such matters, unquote, from Peterson. So there's always been a, con- a difficulty trying to see where the Galatian material fits in with the Jerusalem Council. Do you have any comment on that? Or, I don't know. I talked to Eric. I don't know if we... Yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I've don't know totally kind of, either. Yeah. Other than just logically, yeah. you would think had it already been settled, Paul would have mentioned that in Galatians. Yeah. So that's what caused some to think the Galatian incident with Peter going back on the thing temporarily and then being corrected by Paul may have happened before the council was convened. By the way, though we don't have a roving mic, ask any question you want, I'll repeat it and answer it. Okay? There, Brother Eric. Yeah, uh, my question is, is it fair to say that of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, that the moral law remained in effect, but that these laws that we're talking about were more of the laws that were designed to separate the Jewish people and keep them separate. Okay, let me repeat that. Uh, He asked if it's fair to say that the moral law remained in effect, but these sort of laws, uh, to cause them to be separate, were done away with. Is that that correct? Well, that's commonly uh, stated, but I think it's not correct. And here's why I don't think it's correct. That division of the law about what's applicable and what isn't can be traced back to Calvin. At least I know he's the one that, and his followers about the three uses of the law. 
Well, here's the problem with that. Thanks for raising it. Very good question. The problem is that discounts transfiguration. That discounts the claims of the new covenant that Jesus is the new Moses and that Moses predicted that when God does raise up the prophet, listen to him. Moses didn't say, when God raised him up, keep listening to me. And it is significant that at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah disappear. It doesn't mean the new covenant or the old covenant isn't part of the Bible. And it doesn't mean there's no moral law to be discerned in the old covenant because there was. And it's taught. Now, Eric has taught about this lately. Okay. But. I think Calvin's distinction is contrived. And he fails to see the significance of Deuteronomy 18.15 and then the various accounts of the transfiguration. And here's another issue. If you were under the old covenant and refused to be circumcised, that would be a moral failure. So how can you say it's not moral? Okay. If you're under a certain covenant and the covenant has certain stipulations, all of them, rebelling against those would make you a lawbreaker for all of it. What if you refuse to see any significance in the Day of Atonement? That's immoral. What if you rejected all the feasts? to be immoral what if you said I'm going to eat catfish well see you're actually rebelling then against Moses so the issue isn't taking Moses dividing it up into these things and then picking and choosing this is moral this is just ceremonial and this is just civil it's who is the lawgiver of the covenant we're under And to rebel against whoever that is, is immoral in whatever he said. Now we know from Mark 7 that Jesus declared all foods clean. And that, according to the new covenant, to impose food laws on believers is in fact immoral. Meaning it's a sin, right? Okay, so I would say no See, here's part of the problem. The Reformed tradition teaches replacement theology. And it claims that the church is the new Israel and that there are no promises to the real Israel and that baptism replaces circumcision. And so by missing this whole promise that God would restore Israel and turning church into Israel, so much damage was done that actually caused people to be murdered. They executed people. They launched wars. They thought, we're the new Israel, so we can look back at the old Israel, and we can conquer territories and set up our people to rule over those territories. That did so much damage And you can trace that back to Calvin's failure 
to see the distinction between Israel and the church. Eric, now you've talked about this, so I want to turn it over to yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's very well said. Um, you're exactly right, Bob. And I'm just going to bring this in to help round out the discussion. Is He's exactly right with Calvin. Calvin, remember, has a, he's a covenant theologian. And what covenant theologians tend to do is they tend to gloss over the distinctions between the old covenant and the new covenant. So what they try to say is it's all under the rubric of grace. And so one way to kind of refute that is the idea, remember in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Jeremiah says that the new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. So Calvin wasn't making the distinctions that he should have. So Calvin says the distinctions within the law of Moses are moral, civil, and ceremonial. Mm -hmm. But what Jesus does, as Bob is pointing out, is he takes the entire Mosaic law, he gets rid of it, the entire thing, and he brings in his old law, his own law. And a great place to see that is if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says something, I think, very critical. It's in 1 Corinthians 9.20. In fact, I'll just back up one verse. If you start in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he's talking about his evangelistic endeavors to both Jew and Gentile. And he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So notice the law he's talking about is the law of Moses. He doesn't distinguish between moral, civil, ceremonial. It's just the law of Moses in its entirety. Then he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then notice this parenthetical statement. This is in the Greek. He says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So there is his superseding the entire law of Moses, and now he's under the law of Christ. Right. And so the, the, the way I would think about it is there's three R's. Instead of the moral, moral, civil, ceremonial, what the New Covenant writers and Jesus did with the law is they repudiated it. You can't save. They replaced it with the New Covenant entirely, and they reappropriated it for Scripture. Yes, it's always profitable as Scripture, but it's never to be used as a covenant. And um, I'm sorry, one more thing, Bob, and I want you to talk about this too because Bob is the one who taught me years ago. Notice the claim that's being made. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right. Isn't it interesting that Paul did circumcise Timothy? He, he's not forbidding circumcision in its entirety. So in other words, if someone gets circumcised today, it's not that they're sinning before the Lord. But it's the claim they're making. If you think you need it in order to be right with God, um, this gets back to Romans 14. You're free to worship God on a Saturday. You're not violating anything. However, if you make the claim, unless we have Saturday Sabbath, you're sinning and you're not right before God, then you're an apostate. So Bob has talked often about it's the claims we make. It's the false binding right. and loosing that he's right. It's all us. about binding and loosing. Yeah. And... There are a lot of things that can be done if people are willing just... Am I still on? Yeah, good. Willing to just assert Christian liberty. Because... You're next. If somebody says, we worship on Saturday because that's what works for us. In fact, 
every uh, I know uh, by email, and I knew a guy who was a pastor in Israel, and I sort of know a guy who republished one of my articles in five languages in Israel because the New Apostolic Reformation was coming through Israel. Christian Church meets on Saturday in Israel, at least the ones I know about. Why? The whole nation comes to a halt, and that's your day. And so there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they should do. Wouldn't you do that? If I was going to start church in Israel, I'd meet on Saturday because people are free to come if they want to come hear about Christ. And the reason I believe, and you can see this in Hebrews as well, uh, not to forsake the gathering of the brethren, is that if the church is going to penetrate all the nations of the world, which is the essential thing, that the gospel would go to all the corners of the earth and that all people everywhere would hear about Christ and be able to gather together, the flexibility that is under the new covenant makes it possible for people to gather when and where they can and be pleasing to God. Wherever it goes, whenever it goes, throughout any ages, throughout the entirety of the 2,000 years of church history, you can gather in the name of Christ anywhere in the world on any day and still be pleasing to God. And you can eat at whatever food they have. Now we'll talk about the things strangled or whatever comes up here. How will we do with that? I got to be careful how I answered things. When I was younger, I said a lot of things that probably offended people. Not th- I don't do that now. Yeah. Yeah, I know why you're laughing. I understand. Somebody says, I, I was preaching on somewhere in here 20 years ago. Well, does that mean I can't have blood sausage? And I said, why would you want to? Ugh. And, and he just looked at me like, well, I like it. But the point is, the gospel is what's important. That's the point of Peter's vision. And the offense needs to be the offense of the cross, not the offense of Moses. Because they're claiming you can't be saved. Does that make sense? And, and let me just say some other things about this. I've tried to, as I've articulated this over 40 years of preaching, it took me time to try to get the categories right and understand it, teaching of the church. I preached a series on the Ten Commandments. And some would say, well, you've said we're not bound by Moses. Why are you preaching the Ten Commandments? Because every one of the Ten Commandments is reiterated under the New Covenant. And this is where the ground of it's from. And Christ affirmed these things. Except one. Interestingly, the only one of the Ten Commandments not reaffirmed as binding is the Sabbath commandment. Now listen, uh, dear saints. What did they accuse Jesus of doing? Being a Sabbath breaker. How did Jesus respond to it? Did he get into a technical debate? about what is and is not. He, he gave some illustrations, but his big claim that caused them to want him to be dead was this one. 
come unto me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now that they understood to be Sabbath rest. Because that was at the end of Matthew 11. How do we know it was about Sabbath rest? Because they immediately accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. How come your disciples grabbed some grains as they went through the field on Shabbat? And so then they debated it. What did he say to them? You tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but you're not willing to lift them with a finger. You've taken what God intended to be rest for the people of God and turned it into a worse burden than working. Matthew 23. Okay. Peter. And then Ron. Quick question. Yeah. The greater Moses is Jesus and it's a circumcision of the heart. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Thank you. Peter just pointed out that the circumcision of Jesus is circumcision of the heart. Very good. That's a good reading. Yep. Thank you. I agree. Yeah, their claim was the law of Moses type of circumcision or you're not saved. That's a very good, yeah. The circumcision of the heart. Now that comes out of the Old Covenant. That's a good one because then, Ron, I'm going to get to you. That, that illustrates what Eric was just saying. Thank you, Peter. Because remember, we're not saying take the Old Testament out of your Bible. How do you reappropriate it as Scripture? Well, you go right in there where the prophet said, circumcise your hearts. Yeah, I think it starts, in, if I remember correctly, Deuteronomy 10, the command from the Lord, circumcise your heart, but they can't do it. So the promise is in Deuteronomy 30, I will circumcise your heart. So the circumcision of the heart is this change where all of a sudden, by this power of the Spirit, we're enabled to believe. In Colossians 2, that circumcision of the heart, as Bob is saying, is in Christ. And as Peter is saying, it's in Christ. In fact, in, in Colossians 2, it's referred to as a circumcision made without hands. Now, that phrase, without hands, means it's not affected by human ability. It's something that God alone does. So the circumcision in Colossians 2 cannot be physical circumcision. It must be the circumcision of the heart. Which is conversion. Which is conversion. Yeah. Uh, Praise God. Because you could say, remember Paul said, circumcised on the eighth day? Yeah. Okay. You can do that. You can pull that one off. Your male children... Get the priest, work it out. But when the prophet in the Old Testament says, circumcise your hearts. Now, this is important. It is true that the law shows us our inability. And it's good to know your inability. Oh, yes. Well, I can't do it. Because that sets up the promise of the gospel. The Lord says, I will circumcise your hearts. And you're going to know me from the least to the greatest. They'll all know me. They'll be under a new covenant. So this is an issue about whether we're going to even be saved. Whether we can believe the promises of God. 
whether the circumcision of the heart was mentioned, that came out of the Old Testament, is actually on the scene of history in the person of Christ. Wow. But always somebody is going to try to mess it up. I'm going to go to Ron and then back to you, Peter. Ron. I apologize if you maybe already said this, but to simplify this whole thing, uh, if you want to put yourself under any part of the law, and now you violate any part of the law, you've now violated the whole law, points it straight to the gospel. Good point. Ron, Ron just pointed out that if you put yourself under the law and violate any part of it, then you failed the whole law as well, and you're lost. You're, I mean, you're not right with God. Is that right? Right, right to the gospel. Yep. So therefore, go to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Yes, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, the separation. Uh, Peter is just asking about separation, about the you know, implication that these laws created separation. Is that right? Yeah. And there was this temporary blindness. That's that's correct. And let me just say this about that. Here's what. This will just really help you understand the gospel. It's so important. God's purpose is by keeping Israel distinct and separate that the seed promise would go forward and bring us Messiah. That would be the seed of Abraham and then on forward, including David. Okay. The descendants of Abraham, then there's the Mosaic Covenant, ultimately pointing forward to the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. That's what was important. During the church age, which is from Pentecost to the rapture, what God's purpose is, is to populate the kingdom of God by saving people out of every tribe and tongue on the face of the earth. And the law of Christ is such that there's no barrier for anyone to come if they come under the terms of the new covenant, which is faith in Christ. There's no ethnic barrier that should be put up. We should not make it even more difficult because already we have the offense of the cross. That's enough offense. Okay? The cross is the only way that we can come. We've got to admit there were hopeless, helpless, lost sinners who could never please God by any of our works. We failed God in many, many ways, but that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, God the Son, fully divine, fully human, 
who always obeyed the Father. He said, I always do the things that please the Father, who died for sins, has prophesied in the Old Testament, who died on the cross, who shed his blood, who was physically raised, bodily raised from the dead on the third day, and ascended into heaven before many witnesses. It's through faith in him and faith alone that we come to know Christ. And it doesn't matter what you did, where you came from, who you are, your status before God is determined only by your relationship with Christ. Amen? Amen. And now do you see, I hope that helps you see, why this was such a big deal. Acts is all about this. And I'm going to show you this. I have to acknowledge the great help I got from Reverend Robert Tannehill. Tannehill did such great work on this because he's just reading. Here's what Luke is telling us. I think I mentioned this before. Let me bring it up because I want this in our minds as we go through Acts. In fact, I've got it coming. Let me go to the next slide here. Let's look at verse 2 of Acts 15. And after there was no little strife and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas are rebuking these teachers. Okay. They appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this issue. The word strife in the Greek is stasis and is translated insurrection in Luke 23, 19 and 25 and is translated riot in Acts 19.40. So the way Luke uses this stasis is this is like a riot. This is an insurrection. And we will see in Acts 21, it really does turn into an insurrection. This was so serious that Paul went to, I think, extremes. It's hard to know how to take some of this. And he goes through all sorts of what we would see as extremes in order to get purified, to go to the temple and go into Jerusalem. And even at that, they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Remember that? When you read that, it's a little hard even. I mean, it's, Paul was so concerned that this doesn't blow up into an insurrection that destroys the gospel that he was willing to do things he normally wouldn't do in order to stave it off. But it didn't happen. It didn't work. There's a horrible thing that happened in Jerusalem. Why? They were wanting Jerusalem to be the world headquarters and the law of Moses to be the law that bound the church. And when Paul was on his way there, James was trying to figure out how to deal with it. And James pulls Paul aside. I'm giving you a little preview later in Acts. And said, there we have some men. These were believers. Who who are, they're ready to blow up. I'm just paraphrasing. I don't have it in front of me. This is bad. 
And when the civil authorities got involved, it was because the people that wanted the church to be bound by the law of Moses started an insurrection. And though it seemed to be settled, it never was. I think what settled it was what happened in 70 AD, which is not narrated in Acts, because I believe it happened after Luke Acts was written. It's predicted, but it happened after. And Jerusalem did not become the world headquarters for Christianity. Will it ever be? Yes, during the millennium. Hang in there, brothers and sisters. (laughs) The millennium will come, and we can go up. (laughs) And Jesus will rule. But see, they wanted to make it now, and it wasn't for now. So they have a riot. Let me mention that word, stasis, Luke 23, 19, who had been thrown in prison because of a certain insurrection. Then in Luke 23, 25, this is about Barabbas, I believe, and he released the one who had been thrown into prison because of insurrection and murder. And so that's how Luke used the term. In Acts 19.40, it says, for, we, for indeed we are in danger of being accused of rioting concerning today, since there is no cause in relationship to which we would be able to give an account concerning this disorderly gathering. So this was, again, one of the things that happened. And they didn't want the civil authorities to have to keep intervening because of what's happening with the church. Because of riots and insurrection. So we have a simple choice to decide, and that's who is the head of the church, Moses or Jesus? Okay, it's very simple. If it's Jesus, then his teachings are the law of God that's binding on our consciences. Now, what about some of these things? Well, we can eat certain foods, including ones that would have been considered kosher, within our Christian liberty. Right? But if we make a law saying nobody else can eat anything else, because thus saith me, then we're sinning. Christians have their male children Circumcised often was pretty common just across society. That's within liberty. That's not making a command. You can have your church service on Saturday, or you can have it on Sunday, or you can have it somewhere or some other time. Does that make sense? Good. Uh, uh, yes, Peter. Uh, yes, Eric, could you look up that passage in... in, yeah. in uh, he, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to um, Hebrews 13. That doesn't mean if you miss church some Sunday that you're a sinner. But if we say, I don't have any need for any other Christian, that is a sin. Not only in Hebrews, but in First Corinthians yeah, means of grace. So you'd be forsaking means of grace. 
I used to have it memorized too. Not forsaking the assembling together, as some are prone to do. I, I can't remember exactly where it was. Could somebody find that in the concordance? Oh, I had the. I, I'm the one who sent you to the wrong chapter. Okay, it's 1025. Hebrews 10:25. Yeah, here it is. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right. Okay, that's it. 10:25. Now, we do need to assemble under the mean and, and practice the means of grace. And certainly, there are so many one another's. There's a single word in the Greek, alalus, is it? I think that's it. But it means one another. You can look that up in a concordance. And it's throughout the Bible, the New Testament. We can't say we don't need anybody else. I've run into people who make that claim. All the churches are compromised. Everything is wicked. Therefore, I'm just going to be here by myself and be a pure Christian. Um, yes, Peter. Right. So when you say forsake the assembly, that might be one portion of it, but what about worship? Okay. Um, Attending the church service and worship. Well, the things in Acts 2.42 are essential, including the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a community event in regard to the community of the people of God. And Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. Okay? So it's not optional. And how many times does Paul tell us to pray for one another? Not just Paul, the other apostles as well. Okay, so corporate prayers are taught in the Bible as something that we need. The, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and to the apostles teaching. Eric, please comment. Now, Bob is exactly right. Uh, the Acts 2.42, Peter, when it comes to the fellowship, that would be synonymous with the assembling together in the Hebrews 10.25. And the reason it's important is oftentimes we think of fellowship. Um, I like to shoot guns. We get to get a bunch of Christians together, go shoot guns, and we say, well, there's our fellowship. But the technical definition of the fellowship in the Acts 2.42 it's the arena in which the other means of grace are dispensed. So it's the arena in which the word is proclaimed. It's the arena in which we have the Lord's Supper. It's the arena in which there's prayer. Um, the, the elders pray before. And then um, people are baptized. Exactly. The verse exactly. before that, 241. That's right. That's right. And that's something That doesn't we, happen all the time. It's whenever there's converts. Exactly. So my, my only clarification there then is that the fellowship or the assembling together is that in which those other means are dispensed. It's not simply, hey, we got together as Christians and we watched the football game and we had a time of the assembling together. No, it's where the other things happen as well. So. You mean the Vikings aren't a means of grace? No. <laughs> In fact, they're probably a, a good the thing. opposite. Yeah, yeah. They're probably a temptation to be <laughs> <That's> <laughs> lament. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me explain something, uh, Peter. Let me say this and maybe it'll help. I got this call from some, a couple from Canada 
some years ago when I wrote my first book, and they were telling me a story. I think I've mentioned this before. It was so, uh, it's unbelievable. But the pastor decided to go seeker sensitive. Okay? And so, therefore, he changed everything, including what fellowship was. So what they did for their, one of their, here's one example. They decided to, one summer, to get ever to have a classic car show in the church parking lot. So they contacted a club there where people had restored classic cars, which I like those myself. Okay, and they brought them and they invited the whole community to come to the church to see the classic cars. Well, here was the dispute. The fellow who contacted me is an evangelist but just by the what God does through him, like some of the folks here who love to go out and evangelize. And he said, what I'd like to do is pass out gospel tracts to the people who come to the classic car event. No, you are forbidden to do that. Well, okay, so if I don't have tracks, if I attend an event, can I go around and talk to people about Jesus Christ who come to look at the cars? No, you may not do that. Now, this is an evangelical church. Is the pastors forbidding them to do anything with the gospel? No, you cannot do that. Well, what about if people actually come to church? So they're going to come to see the cars. We're going to invite them to church. If they come to church, once they're at church, then can I tell them about Jesus Christ? No, you may not. Well, why not? He says, because that's not part of our vision. We have a vision for this church. And that sort of thing doesn't fit in. They had a church growth vision. And the pastor would not allow the gospel into the church. That comes to what you're saying. There's nothing wrong with admiring classic restored cars and all the work people put into making them. But that's not Christian fellowship. That's just our recreation. Yes, yeah, Peter. Okay. So my point is, if we are truly to conform to the means of grace or observe them, shouldn't we also attend worship services as well as study the scriptures? Yes, uh, we do attend worship services. So, the, the question would be, it's possible to have m- mental ascent. Do you want me to address that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Peter said, some people have mental ascent. And they come to things, but they don't necessarily have true faith. Here's what I would say to that. The proclamation of the word of God as a means of grace in the assembly needs to include the preaching of the cross. Okay? And here's why I say that. Because Jesus said, 
or excuse me, the, the New Testament says that the preaching of the cross is an offense. It's offensive. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Here's what I believe about that. If we forthrightly preach Christ and the cross and the blood atonement and the reality of the danger of being lost in hell and the promise of eternal life in heaven for those who repent, if we do that forthrightly, if somebody, we we don't know the heart, we can't see the heart, but if someone is willing to come week after week and hear that, that's fine. We can't say, well, I don't know, I don't think you can come, I don't know if it's for real. If you're willing to listen to it, come and listen. And I would agree with some who said this. Who knows? Maybe it was uh, Edwards. Somebody said, who knows when saving grace will come to you? But if somebody comes and demands that we stop preaching Christ and the cross because they don't want to hear it, then they've shown that they're a Judas and, and they're not going to want to be there. So the more forthrightly the cross is preached, the more likely it is that you have the church being those who have circumcised hearts. Yeah, it could be a form of subtle rebellion. Well, I don't know. Somebody, if it's up to the leaders to preach the truth. Let me address that in a bigger scheme of church history. After the Reformation, that was one of the things, the questions that came up. Because earlier, Rome just said, the church is what we say it is. So you submit to the Pope, the Cardinals, the Bishops, the Priests, the Teaching Magisterium. We define the church. We define what's binding. You must obey us. So Luther said, no, Christ alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, you know, uh, the, the glory of God alone, grace alone, the solas. Well, then the issue is, well, okay, so what's a church? A bunch of people get together. If, if Rome doesn't define a church, how do we know what a church is? Here's what they settled on. And I think it's not bad. And the reformer said, you may be assured that wherever the word of God is purely taught and the sacraments are practiced according to the Lord's institution, that there a church exists. That was their definition. Now, we don't use the word sacraments. We use ordinances in order to get even further from Rome. But if the word of God is purely taught, then those who are born of God will grow thereby. I believe that with all my heart. Whatever else gets done, at least in my life, um, and if you saw what all I do, you'd think I'm probably crazy or something because I, I spent so long on each sermon. It, I mean, all the colored pens. My, my grandson told me I've got some sort of a dyslexic thing going on because i got to have colors. <laughs> but all of this work, every Greek word, every sentence, every phrase, and then after that, laying it all out by hand in a notebook, 
How is this slide going to be? What translation is best from the Greek? How can we, what points need to be emphasized? How can we bring this home? And then you put all that together, and then it goes into a PowerPoint, and that sits there. And then I go back before and go into the nose part. Who am I going to quote? What am I going to say? Okay, why do all of that? Because I believe that if the Word of God is purely taught, God's going to use it. And I don't know what else I've failed many times in my life, but I don't want to fail to teach the pure word of God. That would be so horrible. And I was even taught that by some Pentecostal teachers. That you know your scripture that you're preaching better than anybody else who might ever come. Because you did your study. And that was Pentecostals. Because they knew that's how they'd stay out of trouble. They'd just gotten had the problem with the Lateran movement they had to get rid of. So they stay in the scripture, learn the Greek, and teach the word. So I would say to anyone here, if you're considering Christian ministry, know that. Stay in the scripture, preach the word, and do everything you can that the pure word of God comes to the people of God. You'll never regret it. Yes, one more, and then we got to be done. It's a form of gathering together under the means of grace. Yes. You're obeying Christ. Okay, that's what I wanted. Yes. You're obeying Christ by gathering together. Absolutely. The church was defined by Christ and formed by Christ and came into a being by a work of the Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Thank you for the Word of God. And may we have a hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes from faith in what you've done for us through the cross. We thank you for all of this and help us to continue learning. In Jesus' name, amen.